If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning. Welcome on this fourth Sunday to Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. The Lord will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time on and forevermore. Oh, 
Let us bow our heads together. Some of us, Holy One, our joints are stiff, our bones ache, but it's not just that we aren't as young as we used to be. We have been wounded by words. Our relationships are fractured. We are pained by misunderstanding. We are weary from relentless emotional labor. Our hearts ache. Our egos are bruised. All of this while we are trying our best to take care of our families, to do meaningful work, to fight the good fight and finish the race. We know that playing hurt is not a new human experience. Even the Apostle Paul wrote about having a thorn in the flesh. But this is not particularly comforting. So we will try to rest in the psalmist's confidence that you heal the brokenhearted and bind up their wounds. We will try to be assured, just as Paul was, that my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. Be with us in our trying, Holy One. We pray in the name of Jesus, who knew the difference between being cured and being healed. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, verses 1 through 3 and 11b through 32. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to the fields to feed his pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his elder son was in the field 
And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the catted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Now it is possible when you saw what the text was to be this morning, you groaned a bit. Well, that was just me. The story of the prodigal son is arguably the most well-known of Jesus' parables. There have been far more sermons preached on this parable than the total number of points scored by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, Wilt Chamberlain, and Michael Jordan combined. The term, though, prodigal son, does not appear in this parable most often known by that name. The earliest reference is from church father Jerome, who speaks of having written on the prudent and prodigal sons all the way back in the fourth century, which means that's how long we've been hearing about it and also means that there have been a lot of bad sermons on the prodigal son. Yes, preachers are aware, not all sermons are equal. Some are just real stink bombs. It's not just painful for y'all. It's painful for the preacher too, you know, especially when we know beforehand because we're aware, even if we know that it was really the best we could do that particular week, you just have to get in the pulpit and walk that dog and try again next week. So it's not just bad sermons that are problematic. There are also some interpretations of this text that range from not so great to downright harmful. As numerous sermons and studies attest, writes Jewish scholar Amy Jill Levine, many regard the parable as about sinning and repenting, but they also see the parable as correcting an artificially constructed, pernicious Judaism. And at this point, a harmless allegory becomes a dangerous stereotype. Common is the claim, she continues, that the parable reveals an extravagant, earth-shattering image of God the Father who forgives. 
as if Jews had no notion of a divinity who seeks relationship and reconciliation. Common is the view that the older son is an allegorical representation of the Jews who slavishly serve God the Father in order to earn a reward, while Jesus proclaims salvation by grace. And common is the interpretation that the prodigal, given his connection to pig farming, represents Gentile Christians, whereas the older brother, the stereotypical Jew, represents God the Father's outreach beyond the so-called chosen people with their elitist nationalistic attitudes. In these readings, and more, the younger son is the repentant Christian, the older son is the Pharisee or the Jewish people, and the father is God. Such interpretations not only yank the parable out of its historical context, they lessen the message of Jesus and bear false witness against Jews and Judaism. In its original context, the parable of the prodigal son would not have been heard as a story of repentance or forgiveness, or a story of works righteousness versus grace, or a story of Jewish xenophobia and Christian universalism. It is especially important right now to be explicit about anti-Jewish interpretations and attitudes in Christian churches. While the previously mentioned interpretations are not necessarily ones you would have heard from this pulpit, they are taught in many churches, and we must actively identify and root out Christian interpretations of text that include anti-Jewish tropes, whether intentional or unintentional. We know that what is played out on our smaller stages is ultimately enacted on the world stage. And we can see this right now in Ukraine. In a recent sermon, Rabbi David Wolpe of Mount Sinai Temple in Los Angeles explained, the president of Ukraine is a Jew and that has not gone unnoticed in Russia. The former president of Russia, Dmitry Medvedev, referred to Ukrainian president Vladimir Zelensky as a man with certain ethnic roots, and then suggested that Zelensky concealed his Jewish identity to serve the interest of Ukraine nationalists. Have you ever heard about Jews hiding who they are to serve the nefarious interests and undermine a country? There it is, right there. And then the former president said Vladimir's betrayal of Russia, I mean Zelensky's betrayal of Russia, and betrayal was an exact quote, made him like the Sonder Commando. Do you know who the Sonder Commando were? The Sonder Commando were the Jews who were forced to clean the ashes of the bodies of the Jews who were killed in the concentration camps of World War II. When you use that kind of rhetoric about someone, what you are doing is appealing to deeply ingrained anti-Semitic stereotypes in Russia and in Ukraine and all over the world. So today, 
we are going to hear this story without trying to decide which character is God and which character is us or which character is anyone but themselves. And it's not like we don't know what we're really supposed to be listening for. I mean, Jesus really tees us up by using a particular phrase. There was a man who had two sons. Jesus' original audience would have heard plenty of stories that began this way. Adam had two sons, Cain and Abel. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. At the most basic level, all of these stories provide us the opportunity to examine family dynamics and human emotions, which turns out to be, I don't know, a pretty common issue among us. We overhear this story about someone else's family dynamics, which is, as Fred Craddock suggested, one of the most effective ways to bring about transformation. Overhearing a conversation, idea, or encounter provides the right amount of distance for us to drop our defenses, to remove the threat that closes eye and ear, and to permit the word to come to us. And speaking of Fred Craddock, he once tinkered in a sermon with the details of the parable so that the father slipped the ring and the robe on the elder brother and then killed the fatted calf in honor of his years of faithfulness and obedience. A woman in the back of the sanctuary yelled out, that's the way it should have been written. Indeed, many of us feel the same. Our sympathy lies with the elder brother, who does not come on stage until verse 25. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on, and he replied, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. Big brother is big mad. Envious that little bro is getting the ring, the robe, and the fatted calf. Or is he jealous? Or is he both envious and jealous? And what's the difference? Great questions. Thanks for asking. <laughs> Envy writes researcher Brene Brown, occurs when we want something that another person has. According to researchers Richard H. Smith and Sung Hee Kim, envy typically involves two people and occurs when one lacks something enjoyed by another. Jealousy, writes Brene Brown, is when we fear losing a relationship or a valued part of a relationship that we already have According to researchers Mingi Chung and Christine Harris, jealousy typically involves a triad, two people in a relationship and a rival. The rival is usually another person, but occasionally it is something else, such as the loss of a valuable relationship time to a favored activity. They write, the core form of jealousy primarily involves threats to relationship rewards, including loss of a loved one's attention, affection, or resources to another. 
We mostly think of jealousy in the context of romantic relationships, but jealousy also applies to parent-child interactions, sibling relationships, friendships, and coworker relationships. In children, jealousy most often relates to loss of parental attention or perceived special treatment of a sibling that they believe to be unfair. In adults, there are the familiar scenarios like our partner flirting with someone at a party or a close friend suddenly spending a lot of time with a new friend. But sometimes we may even feel the pang of jealousy when a partner or friend spends a lot of time alone doing something that doesn't involve us. We might feel anger or sadness or fear, but what goes through our mind is that we are jealous. And the reason for our jealousy is that the other person or activity is threatening to take time away from our relationship. We see this time and time again in our own lives. In fact, jealousy is such a familiar and significant human experience that the Bible is just chock full of stories trying to get us to talk about it. We do not know, Dr. Levine reminds us, what the brothers' relationship had been, but the tradition suggests that it may well have been dysfunctional. For sibling rivalry is another biblical convention. Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Leah and Rachel, Jacob and Joseph and his brothers, and so on, even into the Gospel of Luke, where Mary and Martha, sisters who never speak to each other, one who is closer to Jesus and one who is resentful of that closeness, they all anticipate the prodigal and the elder. Even were the brother's relationship a good one, the older cannot find it in his heart to rejoice at the news of Junior's return. His own sense of being ignored by both the reinstated brother and the happy father counters any possible joy he might have had. The elder brother's anger is not unprovoked. He has been ignored by those who are feasting and celebrating his alienation is palpable. Years of resentment have finally boiled over and found expression. The son's fidelity has been overlooked. Once again, it seems the problem child receives more attention or more love than the prudent and faithful one. So for us, perhaps in seeing the elder brother's envy and jealousy, we can more quickly recognize it in our own lives and then use it for personal transformation. For as Brene Brown teaches, understanding the nuances of language can help us ask ourselves the right questions when we're experiencing envy or jealousy. If we're feeling afraid or sad or angry or we're deep in coveting mode, we have tools to ask ourselves, am I fearful of losing something I value to another person or do I want something someone else has? If I want something that someone else has, do I want to see them lose it or is it not about that? If I'm scared I'm losing something important 
to me, what kind of conversation do I need to have with that person? In our story, the elder son lacks the self-awareness to identify what he's feeling other than mad and hurt. But the father recognizes both and addresses both and responds accordingly, assuring his older son of their ongoing relationship and of sharing. You are always with me. Everything I have is yours. After assuring him of their bond, the father attempts to restore the relationship between the two brothers because he knows how important this is. He's heard other stories. So he repeats his, resur resur his resurrection language. This brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost. Now he is found. Perhaps if there's anything we're supposed to learn from this parable, it's that a little emotional intelligence can go a long way. What would change in our own relationships if we started asking better questions? None of this is to say that little brother gets let off the hook. Dr. Levine doubts that first century readers would have been any more okay with it than we are. I neither like nor trust the younger son, she writes. I do not see him doing anything other than what he has always done, take advantage of his father's love. It's hard to get much work done when one is filled with fatted calf. If the younger son is seen as truly humble, repentant, and recognizing his dependence on the generosity of his family, how will he act now? In this household, no one has expressed sorrow at hurting another, and no one has expressed forgiveness. The father has, has provided an act of, an, of reconciliation, an initial act of reconciliation, but at some point, the younger brother will have to meet them there. Scripture does not tell us whether or not that happens, but based on those other stories that begin, there was a man who had two sons. We are pretty sure what Jesus was hoping to inspire in his original audience and in us. There was a man who had two sons, Cain and Abel, and so we realize that to kill an individual is not only to kill a brother, it is to kill a quarter of the world's population. We may have written off Cain, but he not only survives, he thrives. We may judge him only as guilty, but even he has a story to tell. Cain committed fratricide, but that is not the sum total of who he is. The mark of Cain is a mark of divine protection. If God can protect him, surely we can as well. Can we find it in our hearts to reconcile him to the human family? 
There was a man who had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. If either is sacrificed, then both are sacrificed. Today, some of the children of Isaac and Ishmael can find themselves at odds or at war, as the Middle East shows us. Yet these two sons reunite at Abraham's death, and together they bury him. Ishmael's hand was to be against his brothers, but Ishmael proved the prediction wrong. If Ishmael and Isaac can reconcile, perhaps their children can do the same. There was a man who had two sons, Jacob and Esau, one who stole birthright and blessing, and one who vowed murder in revenge. And yet when Jacob, wounded from his wrestling with God, encounters Esau, the two reconcile. There was a man who had two sons. We can fill in the details, but scripture gives us hope for our own reconciliations from the personal to the international. For as we said earlier, we know that what is played out on our smaller stages is ultimately enacted on the world stage. What a moment to hold open the possibility that what is thought to be dead can come to life, that what was once lost can be found. May it be so. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m. with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.